following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. We are continuing this week in our series. It's called Death to Division. And we're taking 12 weeks to walk through the book of Ephesians, verse by verse. Now, last week, we unpacked the amazing truth that Jesus has broke down the dividing wall of sin that stood between us and God and separated us from one another. We were made to know, love, and trust God and each other. And Jesus made that possible for us again through his perfect life, substitutionary death, and triumphant resurrection for which we are thankful. This week, we're going to hit one of those spots that Paul is known for. Peter said in his epistle that sometimes Paul's writings are hard to understand. Ephesians is known as being one of Paul's loftiest letters, and we're going to work through a loftier section of this lofty letter this week, okay? Thankfully, We're never counting on our own mental aptitude or ability to understand God's word. But instead, through his Holy Spirit, he opens the eyes of our hearts to see things that our natural senses could never perceive. This is why Paul prayed for these believers in Ephesus, whom he cared for greatly, this way. Uh, We find this uh, earlier in the letter. Uh, And so, as I read this to you, Uh, I'm also praying this over all of us today. This is how Paul said he prayed for the Ephesian believers that he loved and cared for. So I'm going to pray this over us. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. Amen. So let's read Ephesians 3 verses 1 through 13 together. Here we go. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by the revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Praise God for his word. Are you glad we prayed and asked for God's help to understand before we started that? Amen. Me too. (laughs) Okay. 
We're going to go back to verse 1. We're just going to work right through this, okay? So verse 1, it says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. This verse shows us the joy and peace that results from trusting God's sovereignty. Sovereignty means simply that God is in control. And this is a truth that the Scripture makes abundantly clear from cover to cover. A couple examples in Psalm 27. David says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold. Who, of whom shall I be afraid? In Lamentations 5.19, we see, it says this, You, O Lord, rule forever. Your throne is from generation to generation. Now, why are we saying that this verse points to this truth? Paul doesn't call himself a prisoner of Rome, but a prisoner of Christ Jesus. See, he knows that Rome could never hold him if God did not allow it. As a matter of fact, Paul had already been the beneficiary of a supernatural prison break, as recorded in Acts 16. You can go check that out later. Paul also saw from that circumstance and many others firsthand how God can use difficult circumstances for our good and his glory. For example, the jailer in Acts 16, he was about to kill himself because he thought everyone had escaped, but instead ended up asking Paul in the end, Sir, what must I do to be saved? The idea that he is a prisoner of Christ and not Rome has powerful implications for the way we respond to trials and suffering. Now, just real quick, so we don't think Paul is just extreme in his views here, uh, we see a similar idea throughout Peter's first epistle. For example, uh, 1 Peter 1.7 says this, So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's not just Paul that sees things this way, but this is the harmonious revelation of the scriptures on this subject. Here's the thing. You don't have to be in prison for the faith to enjoy the stability that comes from disciplining your mind to think this way. The way that Paul thought for him to call himself the prisoner of Christ Jesus and not the prisoner of Rome. It's a matter of us disciplining our minds to think this way and align our thinking with the revealed truth of Scripture. Whether the trials you are going through are the result of your sin, someone else's sin, or nobody's sin in particular, you're never going through difficult circumstances because God is indifferent or impotent. That's never the reason. 2 Corinthians 4 says it this way, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Praise God. Friends, without heat and pressure, diamonds would just be carbon. Without the opportunity to persevere through difficulty, our faith will never be the precious jewel it is meant to be. Being able to trust that God always has a plan in your struggles is not easy. Can we admit that together today? Somebody else tell the truth. It's not easy. It first requires belief in both God's power and his perfect goodness. Because if we doubt either of these things, 
It leaves room for us to believe our struggle is the result of God's inability to change the situation or that he has an indifference towards the situation. If you don't believe God is all-powerful and perfectly good, there's room for doubt in your mind that maybe he just doesn't care about me, he doesn't see me, or he doesn't have what is required to do something about this. And none of those are ever true. And so in order for us to trust Jesus fully and completely through trial, we have to know what we believe about God. This is why theology matters. This is why we have to know for certain why we believe God is powerful and why we believe he is good. And he's perfect in those attributes. Praise God. Neither of those things are ever true. Many times, if not most of the time, we will be unable to fully understand why God would allow specific trials in our life as we're going through them. That's many, if not most of the time. We also often will not know if his will is to deliver us from them, like how he busted Paul out of jail in Acts, or to be with us through them, like Daniel in the lion's den, or Rack Shack and Benny in the fiery furnace. I just let on a little bit that I'm a VeggieTales kid. Go 90s, right? You understand what I'm saying, though? He plucked Paul up out the jail cell, delivered him from the trial. They went in the furnace. Daniel went in the lion's den. But guess what? God was with them. And they came through. The beauty is that if we trust God is both good and powerful, we know for sure he will either deliver us out of fiery trials or walk with us through them. But whichever way he does it, is the best way possible. And do you understand how believing this, thinking this way, disciplining your mind to deal with situations and to have your perception be shaped by these truths when difficulty comes, do you understand how that would add a degree of stability, peace, and joy in your life that you could experience no other way? Because without the anchor points we're talking about right now, without these things to hold on to in the midst of the storm, you're blown about by the situation. You're blown about by doubt. You're blown about there's nothing to grab a hold of. Oh, but to be able to answer, to be able to write as Paul did, I'm not, I'm not a prisoner of Rome. Rome couldn't hold me if God was not in this. I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And to rejoice in that truth. Amen. That brings us to verses 2 through 6. Let's read those again. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Here we see Paul refer to a mystery twice, a mystery unknown to previous generations before him, but revealed in Jesus. So what is this mystery? Okay. It, it seems like he's going to leave it dark and murky, but in verse six, he makes it crystal clear. I know we just read it, but it's good. So let's read it again. Here's the mystery. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus, through the gospel. Friends, here's the question. Why is this such a big deal? 
Why does Paul keep talking about this in different ways throughout the letter? If you've been tracking with us through this, you know that this idea that the Gentiles are included, that this is a major theme of the book of Ephesians. He's just hitting it over and over again. He's coming at it from different angles. Why? Well, one reason is he's writing to the church at Ephesus, which, which would have been made up of mostly Gentiles and not Jewish converts to Christianity. So first of all, he wants them to be sure that salvation is for them through Jesus. But he also wants them to marvel that salvation is for them through Jesus. And so he keeps spinning it. He keeps bringing it back. He keeps talking about it. It's not enough just to acknowledge it, but it's a fact. It's a truth that should be marveled at. Here's... Here's why this would be complicated, and here's why he needs to keep talking about it. Because the, the context made this shocking. Israel was looking for a Messiah. And there were people from other nations around that knew they were looking for a Messiah. But everyone thought this Messiah was going to come and liberate Israel from the oppression of surrounding nations. Nobody understood that Jesus was coming to save Israel and the surrounding nations from the oppression of Satan, sin, and death. Nobody saw that coming. And that's why over and over again, he's saying, this, this Messiah, this Jesus that came, this Savior that came, yes, he came through the lineage of Israel, but not just for Israel, but for all. This is why the gospel was so shocking to them, and it still is today. The Jews thought their salvation would come through the decimation of evil nations. But instead, Jesus came and made it possible for people from all those temporary nations to be brought together into an eternal kingdom. See, Israel thought Jesus was going to come and lay waste to all these other nations. Jesus came and made it so that they could all be brought into his body. He, they thought he was going to come break the enemies down, but what he did is he brought them all together. He did, he did a miracle that was far beyond what they thought could happen. Sure, they thought God could send some military leader that could crush the oppressors. Nobody's imagination could have possibly stretched to understand what really Jesus' mission was. To come and make brothers and sisters out of every nation. To come and through his gospel, make every man and every woman have the possibility of hope in this life and for eternity. Through faith and trust in Christ. And these facts, these ideas, this is why we must never let temporal, man-made divisions determine the way we think about people or treat people. We are called to love our neighbors and our enemies because we know that the gospel has the power to transform enemies into brothers and sisters in Christ. And we were all enemies we were all enemies of God before Christ came and mercifully saved us, plucked us up out of the kingdom of darkness and death and brought us into the kingdom of life and light. Hallelujah. We should never be at a place where we don't have hope for somebody else because that just means we have lost sight of how amazing God's grace has been towards us. Nations rise and fall but the kingdom of God endures forever. The foolish lies we buy into that cause us to divide from others based on superficial differences 
They are crushed into dust under the mighty weight of the gospel. We let the enemy divide us over politics and race and income and age. We let the poison of pride make us sick and then quarantine ourselves with other people who we think are at least the same kind of sick we are. This is foolish. And worse than it being foolish, this is offensive to our Savior King, who died so that men and women from every race, of every class, at any age, could turn from sin to trust in him and be saved. This is not just theory. Um, I I have a neighbor who lives very close to me, and uh, he's in his early 80s. And uh, just yesterday, I sat with him for a little over an hour. It was probably closer to two. And uh, we talked about a lot of things. It was just nice. It was a good time. But at one point during the conversation, um, holding back tears, he told me, it seems like some of these young pastors today don't want us old people around. Now, he had some very good reasons for feeling this way, which I'm not going to go into um, because I'm trying to mind my blood pressure. But um, my response to him overall was this. If there are young pastors or young Christians who don't want older saints around, they are fools. Full stop. A healthy church will have young people with the energy and physical strength left to do the work of the ministry, and it will have older folks who teach and train and encourage and support and cheer on those younger ones. God's whole design is that there would be a loving legacy passed from generation to generation of gospel work. That's how this is supposed to go. How do you know? Well, I know for sure, he said, older women teach younger women right? There's, that's what he's doing as he's writing that book. He's doing the same thing. He's transferring in his letter to his protege the teachings and the principles that will allow him to take the torch of the gospel and continue to carry it. We see parents in Deuteronomy, they're told, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and teach your children to do the same. The younger generation, when this functions correctly, And the gospel informs the way we deal with one another. The younger generation gets the incredible benefit of learning from the faithful example of older saints. And the older generation gets the beautiful privilege of watching the next generation follow in their footsteps. And for a godly saint that is seasoned and has been doing it a long time, there is oftentimes no greater pleasure than to know they have handed over what God put in them to someone that is now going to be able to carry it. Every person has a desire to leave legacy. Many times that desire gets skewed and and people take that desire and put it into other arenas outside of the gospel, but its purest and most beautiful form is when each generation grabs the hands of the generation after them and leads them into faithful execution of the mission that Jesus gave to all of us. That's what this is supposed to look like. Satan hates it when it happens, though. He'll do everything he can to stop it. The power of the gospel radiates from a group of people who are different from one another, but join their lives together for the sake of telling the world that there is hope in Jesus. 
This is one of the ways the world should be shocked at how the love of God transforms us. The beautiful witness of unity and diversity will never happen by accident. It will take supernatural humility and intentionality from every person that is a part of every group that would be tempted to see themselves as better or more useful than another. Our human tendency, we need to know this about ourselves and really judge ourselves in this, our human tendency is to divide into little tribes with people that think like us. The gospel calls us to be one body made up of every tribe, nation, and tongue. It's a distinct and important difference. We need to judge ourselves and we need to see that tendency, how it plays out in our own life, and we need to put it to death by the power of the gospel. There's a lot at stake here. Eternity's at stake. This is not natural. It is supernatural. It's counterintuitive and it's mind-blowing stuff. And that's why Paul keeps hammering these ideas throughout this letter. He will not let off of it. I'm glad he doesn't. That brings us to verses 7 through 9. Of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. I think it's useful to point out the word minister here in verse 7 basically means servant. It's tied to a word that means like, a guy that's serving a table and is tied to that table until the master tells him he can go. Um, I think it's good if ministers remember that, just in case somebody hears it other than me and the ministers that are here among us today. So Paul is just marveling here that God would allow him by his grace to take the good news of the gospel to the Gentiles. And I, I'm just wondering, friends, on how many days do we find ourselves uh, in utter awe and wonder that we have been entrusted with the gospel and as wretched as we were are able to carry the good news of the gospel, the light and hope of eternity through Christ to the world. How often instead are we on the other side of the fence thinking about how many times we are inconvenienced by all of the pieces of our life that have to be laid upon the altar in order to see the work of the kingdom done. Paul here marvels at the very fact the simple truth that God would allow him to have the good news of the gospel upon his lips, take it to the Gentiles. It's pretty amazing, it is, a guy who would have been the most likely to be proud of his Jewish heritage, a guy who had all the pedigree that would allow him to think very highly of himself and would even cause others to agree that he was pretty awesome. It's very interesting that now he talks of God graciously allowing him to take the gospel's message of inclusion for all by faith in Jesus to the very people that before Christ he would have thought he was better than. Woo! I like when Jesus does stuff like that, but that should also be helpful for us because there's all kinds of reasons many of you feel underqualified, disqualified, or whatever from being a part of this great and glorious work of bringing the hope of the gospel to the world. And I just want you to understand if anybody was unqualified, underqualified, or disqualified, his name was Paul. And yet, God grabbed him and said, no, I'll take you. Because God really likes using the people that it's so abundantly clear that 
If he hadn't got in the mix and he hadn't done something, that person could have never accomplished what they accomplished. Paul was the exact opposite guy to go to the Gentiles with the gospel. God said, watch this. Didn't he? Hold my scroll, right? I doubt God holds any scrolls. There's probably angels for that, but it's the only thing I could think of, so. There you go. Paul was not the only one, by the way, who God revealed how, you know, this grand redemption plan. Um, I think it's, we should ask, the, if Paul was the only one running around saying, the gospel's for the Gentiles, uh, I, I think we should, we would at least need to really check that. We've got to make sure one guy, just based on revelation, that he says he got, is basically saying, yeah, Jesus is for everybody, the gospel's for everybody, that would be problematic, but that's not what we're dealing with at all. If you go to Matthew 28, you'll remember the last thing Jesus said to his men was, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded, and surely I'm with you to the very end of the age. It's interesting that Peter was standing there for this command from the Lord Jesus, but Peter didn't put two and two together right away. And that's why you get into the book of Acts. You see this point where Peter's put into a trance. God rattles his cage a little bit on this subject uh, to cement the point in his mind. He gives him this vision. He's up on a rooftop, says he was hungry. And God gives him this vision where this, this four-cornered sheet-type thing gets brought down and inside it is all these different animals. You know, and, and Jewish dietary restriction would have said that many of the things on this sheet were, were not on the menu. And God said, get up, kill and eat. Peter said, absolutely, God. I would never eat one of these unclean things. And God says, quit calling things unclean that I've called clean. And so it starts there. He still doesn't quite get it, but then immediately a guy shows up, a Gentile, and he says, hey, God sent us to come talk to you. Will you come with me? So he goes to their house, and, and Peter, you know, Peter may not have been the, the, the brightest crayon in the box, the sharpest knife in the drawer, but man, once he got it, he got it. And so he gets to these guys' house, and he begins to talk, and he understands uh, Oh, I wrote it down, Acts 10, 34. So all that happens, he gets to the house, and Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. And so there's absolute harmony in the scriptures. This is not just... You know, Paul was out in the Arabian desert and ate some bad cactus juice and, and got a weird vision, and that's what we're based off here. Uh, Jesus made it pretty plain. He didn't say, go and make disciples of the Jewish people. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. And he knew how much he freaked the disciples out by, by saying that. They didn't even totally get it, but they knew the task was much larger than they could have ever accomplish, and that's why he ended with, now remember, I'm with you. Because that was a jaw dropper right there. All right, now we're at verse 10 and 11. This should put, this, this, yeah, put your floaties on. This is where it gets deep. Okay. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This, this is one of the head scratchers, guys, I was telling you about. Um, it's deep, but once we taste some of the sweet water at the bottom of this well, we're going to be real happy we did all the work to lower our bucket down in here, okay? Now, there are some who have said the rulers and authorities that are mentioned here in verse 10, 
that these are like world governments and whatnot, okay? That does not seem to make much sense, though, because Paul specifically says in the heavenly places, okay? So you've got commentaries that disagree on this. I, I don't see any way, and there's a lot of people that I would trust their interpretation. They're, they're, it's very hard to see this as world governments. He, he says in heavenly places on purpose. So the best way to understand this is that these are both obedient and fallen angels, okay? So why? We know that Satan and his demons have some temporary authority on this earth. Thank God it's temporary, but it does exist. And we know that God's angels do what they do by the command and authority of God himself, okay? So understanding that, it says, made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That is the best, most congruent way to understand what he's saying here, okay? The manifold wisdom of God, that language he uses here, that's basically a way to say the incredible, incalculable, and inconceivably awesome wisdom of God in the gospel. The manifold, it keeps unfolding. <laughs> You're not going to exhaust how awesome the wisdom of God is in the gospel. Um, and we know it's talking about the gospel because not only is he flowing out of that thought, but he flows back into it in verse 11. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose for which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. What was that? The gospel, right? I'm going to do you guys like the kids upstairs. They know 95% of the time, if they didn't listen to the question, if they just say Jesus, they're going to get it right, okay? So down here, you got a 50-50 shot. It's Jesus or the gospel, okay? So just take the chance. You'll be all right. My Lord, okay. Hallelujah. Now you made me lose my place and everything. Um, okay, so we know in Peter's epistle, uh, he said that the angels long to look into the beauty of the gospel, Okay, so that also corresponds with this. There's some other scriptures that would help us with that. So the question is, why is, why is this so cool? Why is this uh, the well that's deep with sweet water that I told you about? Okay, so this says the manifold wisdom of God being made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. How? How is it being made known? Through the church. Woo! What does that mean? This means God's plan all along was to bring the church into existence through Christ and use us to show just how powerful and wise he really is. Now let's keep in mind, will we? These are angels and demons who have seen God send plagues on Egypt, part the Red Sea, hold all of creation together. Some of them may have been around, during that creative act, by his might and will, they saw the plagues, man, they saw the Red Sea, they saw all of this, and the church is still revealing something greater to them about how great God is than all those things could. These are angels that are well aware of God's creative power. They have seen how he holds all of creation within his hands, and yet there is something revealing the manifold wisdom of God through the church. The church, God's people saved from spiritual death and raised to eternal life through Christ. The church causes every angel in heaven to rejoice with joy unspeakable and every devil in hell to shriek with terror. They are all somehow through the church having revealed to them a greater degree of God's might and wisdom than they could have any other way. Is that what it says or is it not what it says? 
Let's read it again. I don't think some of you believe me. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Speak now, forever hold your peace. It's all lining up for me. What does that mean, man? This is why we're going to see when we get to Ephesians 4, and this is why we see in Colossians 1, that we are called to walk in a manner worthy of the call to which we've been called. Church, we are meant to display the glorious might and immeasurable wisdom of God to every being in the heavenly realms and to be light and salt to a watching world. God's intention all along was to bring his church on the scene and to use us to show somehow a different and glorious facet of how good and wise and powerful he is. The fact that he is saving sinners, the fact that he's taking people dead in their sin and bringing them to life, what he's doing with the church, the fact that he can take broken vessels like us and do something with us, the fact that he can use us and include us in the redemption plan of the ages, it declares his wisdom. And everybody's put on notice. Every angel in heaven and every devil in hell. All of that being the case, can we then come to this implication? Can we agree that this is where we should land? Can we forego the distractions and futility that so often hold our attention and take our place as the ambassadors and heralds that we are called to be of Christ the King? I think oftentimes our understanding of who the church is and what the church is is pitiful, and it, it bears no resemblance to how the Word of God describes her. And we, dear friends, who have been brought to life through faith in Christ, we have been brought in to this magnificent body of His, the church, and we need to treat her, and we need to participate in her mission with much more passion and gratitude than oftentimes we do. I like the idea that we're teaching angels and demons something about how good God is. Amen. Verse 12 and 13. In whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. I'm going to comment on 13 now because I'm going to drill into 12 pretty deep. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart in my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. We can take that and tie it right back to the first verse, and, and, and they loop together very beautifully because, again, we're coming back to not losing heart at tribulation, but trusting in God's sovereignty. And so Paul's saying, not only, I know the, you folks at the Ephesian church, I know you love me, you care for me. And how many of you, you know, I've had people that they have had a hard time trusting that God is good, not primarily because of difficult things they've gone through. Now, to be sure, I've encountered a fair share of that, but there's many times because people have a strong gift for empathy or ability to uh, feel the pain of others, their biggest concern is not pain that they've suffered, but pain that other people have suffered. And that causes them to doubt the goodness of God. But he's encouraging them here. I know you love me. I know you know that I'm stuck in this jail, but don't you let that make you doubt God's goodness or sovereignty. Because I'm not. I'm the prisoner of Christ. And so you keep going. 
We're, gonna, we're all going to trust God together, and however this goes is how it goes. And I know God's good and God's with me. He's either going to deliver me up out of this, or he's going to walk with me through it, and either way, I say praise him. He begins, and he ends that thought, ties it together. Praise God. Okay. Now, let's look at verse 12. It says, in whom, that ties us back to, he just said, Christ Jesus our Lord, okay? So that whom is that? So this access language here in verse 12, it takes us back to last week's analogy that sin created a barrier, a wall between us and God, and it separated us from one another. Now, Jesus destroyed that wall by living the perfect life none of us could have, and then dying the death all of us should have. Jesus, the perfect innocent one, took the punishment that each one of us were guilty of and deserved. But then he rose from the grave because death had no lasting claim on him. And through his resurrection, he conquered sin and death for us. That's how the wall came down. It wasn't how anybody thought the wall was going to come down. Actually, he came and broke down a wall nobody even thought he was going to break down. Praise God. I'm glad God surprises us. At the cosmic level and at the individual level. He surprises me just about every day. I'm glad he's smarter than me. So what does this mean? This means we're no longer held back from God, but invited to approach him with the same bold access that a beloved child has to their father. This beautiful truth works out practically in two major ways. Because of Jesus, we have the privilege of prayer, and because of Jesus, we have the privilege of God's presence. The boldness language here is really conveying something like freedom of speech, not necessarily exactly the way like the Constitution does. It, that, that's not exactly the same, but there is this idea that there's a freedom to speak. The truth is, we not only get to speak to God, but we can be honest with him, knowing that any words that escape our mouths were first thoughts in our minds and hearts, and he already knows those, Right? So anytime we've thought, I don't, I'm scared to tell God about this, he already knows, okay? You're not hiding anything from him. We know, we know that he is patient with us. And so we can be honest about our doubts and struggles, and he will not reject us, but instead he's going to reach for us and pull us closer to him still. He draws near to the brokenhearted. Our God is a God who has compassion on the struggling. Praise God. I'm so glad he's like that. How can you be that powerful and that compassionate? It just doesn't seem to go together, but it's our God. Amen. Even the favorite or most beloved child should still approach their father with a level of respect and reverence. So I said everything I said. But I also want to, I want to counterbalance it with this. Even the most beloved child should approach their father with a level of respect and reverence. This is true to an infinitely higher degree with our Heavenly Father, who is holy beyond measure. We are free to speak to him in prayer, and we should rejoice in this freedom. But we must also keep in mind who it is we are addressing. People who struggle with honor will have a hard time with this. Honestly, we have an epidemic of people who do not understand, nor do they know how to give honor to anyone, including God. 
The Bible says we should outdo one another in showing honor. The Bible says we're supposed to be in a contest with one another all the time. I'm supposed to be outdoing you. I'm supposed to be doing everything I can to show you honor, and you're supposed to be competing with me, trying to show me more honor than I'm showing you. Boy, what a beautiful culture that would create. But instead, we get sucked into backbiting and old goofy, foolish stuff instead. God help us. Thankfully, he's patient with us. I want to do better at that. Many people live as if authentic communication must be sloppy or relaxed in order to be real. I think God is gracious even with people who may approach him with irreverence because of ignorance. However, the more your eyes are opened to just how splendid and majestic and mighty God really is, the less you will find yourself able to come at him as if he's on your level. Okay, good. The access language here, verse 12, it shows us this is not just like we get to call our father on the phone and speak to him, but because of Jesus, we get to actually be near him. And that's important. Psalm 91 talks about dwelling in the shadow of the Almighty. It's a favorite verse for me, which that's awesome to think about, to be so close to him, I'm in his shadow. That's what it means. But we have it even better than that. Last week, we saw that the church is the people of God, and the people of God are the temple of God. We don't just have God near us. His Holy Spirit lives in us. And this means God's presence is literally always with us. Now, it's time to get honest. If we're honest, though, the degree to which we can perceive his presence varies greatly. Does it not? It does. Sometimes we think gathering as God's people or singing to worship him together that it causes his presence to come into the room like it did with Isaiah in the temple. You remember that? When Isaiah was in the temple praying, it says the glory of the Lord filled the cherubim and the coal and he's, I'm undone, he thinks he's going to die. That's not really how it works. If God dwells in us, then he is in every room we go into. So why does it seem that his presence is more tangible Sometimes when we're gathered like this singing or we're studying his word and we're taking communion together. Why does it seem that way? God's presence doesn't come and go. But our ability to perceive the spiritual reality of things can fluctuate. I'm going to give you an example of this. I realize I told you Paul drug us on the deep end this week, okay? So quit looking at me like that. This ain't my fault. This is just what the verses are taking us to deal with, okay? This is good. This will help us. Because we think wrong about this a lot. We think, I need to do something to try to cultivate and stir up and get God to come where I'm at. Well, hold on, man. We just read last week that we are the New Testament temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells in us. He's the flame, I'm the candle. So where I go, he goes. Is that right or wrong? Okay. Look at this. Uh, The king of Aram wants to come and kill Elisha. Okay? And he's got a servant. We're in 2 Kings Six, don't try to turn there. I'm just going to read this to you. Now, when the servant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots were circling the city. This is Aram's army coming to get him. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, The mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire 
all around Elisha. Those horses and chariots were not Aram's. Those were God's. What am I saying? Many times there is a spiritual reality around us and in us that we are unable to perceive. We need to know. We need to know that God's presence is always with us. But almost like, like dialing in a station on a radio, we, we have to tune our hearts and minds to perceive him. And, and here's the reality, man. Your own wicked, sinful heart, Satan and his cohorts, and, and just the fact that this world is sinful is going to run by and spin that dial. All, you might be working real hard to try to tune in to that place, that frequency where you're perceiving God's presence and you're connected to him and you're, you're, you're hearing from him and you know that, that he's right there with you. There's all kinds of things that are going to come and try to just whiz that dial and mess it all up. We've got to guard against that. There's several ways that we can do that, though. There's several ways that we can kind of tune that dial and, and come to the place not where we're going to get God's presence to show up, but that we're going to be able to change the, what we're perceiving, that the level to which we're going to be able to understand that God's presence is there and, and perceive it. I, I keep saying perceive because I hesitate at the word feel because of some of the connotation that comes with that, but that's really what I'm saying. Sometimes you feel God's presence to a day, greater degree than others. Is that right or wrong? It's right. So what do we do? Because if God's presence is really there all the time, I'd like to spend more time perceiving more of his presence than I sometimes do. Am I the only person in the room, or is that right or wrong or true, or are you mad about it, glad about it, sad about it? Okay, good. I would like to walk in a place where I am aware of God's tangible presence at all times. I think I'd make a lot of better choices. I think I'd be a lot more effective for his kingdom, probably. Amen. Okay, so here's some ways we can do that. We can do this by... Getting quiet before the Lord. That's probably the first thing most of you would have thought. If I'm going to try to get to the place where I'm perceiving God's presence to a greater degree, he is always there, but sometimes I can't pick up on it. I can't see it. I can't feel it. If I can get quiet before the Lord, a time of prayer, a time of Bible study, many people refer, refer to a prayer closet. That is, that is absolutely a, a legitimate and, and, and worthwhile practice to, to tune that dial on you so that you can perceive better the fact that the Lord walks with you all the time. So getting quiet before the Lord, we can, we can tune that dial by uh, gathering with others who help us calibrate our sensitivity again. I don't know about you, but um, as we stood together and, and sang worship uh, to God together uh, at the beginning of this service, my, my dial was getting tuned in, man. I, I absolutely became, had a greater awareness of God's presence in this room than, than maybe when I walked in. And, and that, that is consistent. It's consistent. It makes a lot of sense. If, if each one of us is, is a stone being built into a holy temple, I'm just using Paul's analogy, okay? I'm not getting weird here. This is just what Paul said. If each of us is a, a living stone that, that the, the Spirit of God is in us and we're being built into this holy temple, it just makes more sense when more of us get in one place with the intention of focusing our hearts and minds upon Jesus and his glory and the wonder of his gospel that collectively we would spur each other on to love and good works. That's why Hebrews 10 says we shouldn't forsake the gathering of ourselves together. Everybody wants to say, well, do I have to go to church to be a Christian? That's an idiotic question that you should stop asking. What do you mean, man? Do I have to wear a parachute to skydive? I guess not. <laughs> but what are we doing, right? Like, Anyways, um... Um, 
But that, that's, I mean, that's what Hebrews 10 says, doesn't it? The point of us getting together is to spur each other on to love and good works. There is something about us gathering as God's people, both like this and the way we do in community groups. It's got a point. We're coming together, and, and there's a focus, and it's upon the Lord. And, and there is a way. It's, it's a spiritual thing. I'm, I'm, struggling, I'm struggling to explain it because it's not totally explainable. But when I get around a bunch of you that love Jesus, and we're talking about how we love Jesus, and we're loving Jesus together, man, I, I perceive his presence to a greater degree than oftentimes I do by myself. And it's different. It's not even that it's necessarily more or less. It's, there is a different something that happens when we get together like this. That's why God commanded it. It's not just a command. It's, it's a privilege he's allowed us to have. That we can get together like this and we can enjoy uh, that calibration that happens and, and the increase in our sensitivity to perceive his glorious presence. Because, friends, there is nothing in this world that touches when you, when you have that experience of, of, of a greater degree of his presence being revealed to you, as you, as you feel that, that glory and that love and just that holiness of, of God's presence as, it's, as it washes over you, there is nothing. I've done a lot of things, man. I've had a lot of great experiences in my life. Nothing comes close. Nothing. So we can get quiet before the Lord we can gather together like this, as is commanded. And the last thing we can do that's going to help us tune that dial to perceive to a greater degree. And that's what I'm saying. I know some of you, this is a different language than you've ever heard. You're very used to, let's get the Lord's presence to come in here. Let's usher his presence in. And I'm not, it, it, I'm not going to ride that as a super hard technicality because to some degree, whether we're cultivating our own perception or whatever it is to invite his presence, that's fine. I'm not, I'm not, getting, I'm not, not splitting a hair over that, but I just think... Oftentimes, um, like we, we keep asking God to do something he's already done. Lord, come be here with me. Hello? Right? I already told you in here like a hundred different ways that I'm here. You know, if I, whoo, that's why I'm not God. Man, I would be a black spot on the ground and most of you would too. There's a few of you here real sweet that you'd probably make it, but if I was God, be a lot of Sodom and Gomorrah happening. <clears throat> I love you, though. All right. Did I give you the third way yet? I don't think so. Here's the third way. By, en by engaging on mission and putting ourselves in situations where if we don't have Jesus, we are sunk. I have experienced God's presence in really powerful ways in silence before him, in, in groups of Christians gathered like this for the intent of worshiping him and studying his word. But guys, some of the times I have most tangibly been able to perceive the truth that God's presence is always with me is when I got out on a branch and into a place and in a situation where if he didn't show up, I was done for. I'm talking about taking the leap and, and, and offering to pray for that person and, and you're terrified because you don't know what you're going to say. I'm talking about thousands of times I've been with teams out on the streets and we encounter people that everyone else would just run based on the way they're looking and the way they're acting and, and by the end of it, we're able to sow a seed of gospel hope into their life. I'm not talking about, it doesn't mean that every single time they drop to their knees and say, how must I be saved? But the very fact that we're getting into, when we get into situations where we allow God to use us and take us beyond our comfort zone, that's going to look different for different people. You know, I've done a lot of crazier things than, than many of you, so my, maybe my comfort zone is a little more stretched out, and it's probably got to do with just that I'm crazy. But for some of you, man, it might just be, you know the Lord's been 
stirring and, and tugging at your heart to give a word of encouragement to this one person at work or just say something about Jesus in this certain setting and you just you, you haven't been able to do it. I'm talking about right now, if you have a desire to perceive God's presence greater in your life, just get out there outside of what you can do on your own and watch him show up. Watch him show up. And so every single day, if we are wise, and, and what we want is more of God's presence in our life to be revealed to us and for us to be able to perceive it, we're going to be looking for opportunities every single day to get outside of that happy little shell we build um, where we, can, we think we can handle it all. Here's the real deal. Like if, if our blinders could be taken off, we would realize that the, the whole process of inhaling and exhaling that we're doing right now, like that's outside of our purview. We need Jesus for that. He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you do nothing. Right, So we're fools anyways if we think we got any of this under control, but we convince ourselves we can do a certain part. I can do, I can do this much. Really, you're relying on God for that anyways. You just don't know it. But if you, if you would, by faith, step into more situations and be obedient, what did it say? Access. What is the other word it uses? Boldness. There's a boldness that should come in knowing the very power of God, the same power of God that raised Jesus up from the dead is at work in me. So that's why the psalmist says, whom shall I fear? What situation should I fear? If the God who speaks cosmos into existence and brings Jesus up from the dead and brings his church into existence by the power of his might and his wisdom, if he's with me, and not even that he you know, stays within 10 feet of me. He has made me his abode. Where I go, he goes. I'm with you to the end of the age. I'm sending a helper. You're the New Testament temple of the Holy Spirit. If I've got God's power at work in me, what situation, what person, what circumstance am I going to fear? Should be none. Those are three ways that we can turn that dial and that we can, we can increase our perception of the reality that God's presence is with us all the day. And I hope some of you are sharing uh, the sense of tragedy that I am sharing as I've thought through this to understand that God has indwelt us with his presence and yet we spend much of our time unable to perceive it or unwilling to pursue being able to perceive it. That seems like a bit of a waste would you not agree? Let's change that. How? Well, primarily, we're going to plead with him to help us because even these things that I gave you, we're going to need his help to walk in those. Can't do any of this without him. Praise God. I am so thankful, by the way, for the, the special thing that happens when a bunch of people carrying the presence of God who love each other and have committed to serve one another in the context of a local church, when, when they come together and we sing together and we study God's word like this, I, I am so thankful that that, that is a reality. I, I, I hope that it's real for you too, but as I stand here studying God's word with you, I can perceive the presence of our God to a greater degree than sometimes when I'm out in the flesh during the week acting like a fool. I hope that's true for you too. But I want to do that less. I want to walk in the Spirit. That's what those scriptures are talking about, man. We've got to at least set the bar. We've got, we got to increase our vision. Amen. May we be a people 
who see ourselves as prisoners of Jesus Christ and rejoice. May we walk in a manner worthy of being called the church of Jesus Christ. And may we grow in our ability to perceive the faithful presence of Jesus Christ for his glory and our good. Amen. Praise God. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for the first 13 verses of Ephesians chapter 3. Thank you, God, though this was deep water, it was sweet water. Thank you that by the power of your spirit, you've led us through it and you've shown us things that are described as mysteries. God, none of us can hope to hold a candle to your eternal wisdom. Your thoughts are so much higher than ours, but I thank you that you delight in bringing your thoughts down to a place where we can understand and rejoice in who you are, what you're thinking, and what you're doing. You are mighty, and Lord, your wisdom is immeasurable. God, it's an idea we're going to have to get used to, understanding that you are revealing your wisdom through the church, not only to authorities in the heavenly realms, but also to the world, that you see us as one of the primary ways you are revealing how great and worthy of worship and service you really are. God, we repent collectively as your people that we have not walked in a manner worthy of that kind of call many times. Many times we've allowed ourselves to be distracted, have our eyes pulled to the right and to the left. Many times, God, we've let division among ourselves distract us from the mission of sharing your gospel, but also of projecting out to the world the reality of how awesome you really are. God, help us to do better at that, please. We repent for our foolishness, and we ask that your spirit would work among us. God, may we rise to the call of unity that Jesus prayed in John 17. God, may we be one as you are one. Lord, when we sin and when we fall short of that perfect mark, God, may we be quick to forgive. May we be quick to repent. God, may humility mark us as a people. We need that. God, we want you to be glorified in all that we do. Thank you that your presence is with us. God, help us to filter more of our actions and thoughts through that simple truth. And God, I ask you to help us increase, just like Elisha prayed for that servant, to let his eyes see the spiritual reality. God, I, ask, I pray that for this church. I pray that for myself. God, help us see the spiritual reality. Help us perceive what's going on around us and what's going on in us. God, we don't want to be blind. We want to see. And we want to live in light of the glorious truth that you are with us. We acknowledge your sovereignty and we rejoice in your sovereignty. And we join Paul in saying we are prisoners of Christ Jesus. Thank you, God. And in the midst of any circumstance, we know you're either delivering us from it or you're walking with us through it. And we will not despair. Thank you. Thank you for all these things. We love you, Master. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.